Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 217. This week, we talk with Brady Gaster about SignalR and the SignalR service, how the Age of Empires AI thinks, Accenture is sued until it hurts, and we're completely shocked, shocked that the Galaxy Fold has reliability issues. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week we have Brady Gaster, Senior Program Manager on the ESP.NET Core team. How's it going, Brady? Going well. Doing well. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Uh, so, Carl, how long has it been? It's been five years since uh, we've been doing this podcast. That's impossible. Uh, start, there's no, there's started, no way that works out that way. Ep- episode one was April 14th, 2014. So, yeah, we've uh, this is now episode 217. So we've had a, a pretty nice strong run at it, too. It's funny because I think you've been with me a couple of times and people ask like, how long have you been doing the show? And I'm like, I don't know, like two or three years. And then Carl's like, we've been doing it four years and now it's like five years. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I have, I have, for some reason, I, I underestimate it by multiple years. I can't believe, I mean, like what was, what was 2014 like? I don't remember yeah. what it was like back then. Did we have computers? It must have sucked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we use rocks to record the podcast or something. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Things have, things have really changed. And then uh, you want to talk about stickers again? Yep. Uh, we've gotten uh, quite a few people asking for stickers, and I'm going to be mailing some more out today. So if you want us to send you <laughs> stickers, all you have to do is send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, put stickers in the subject line, and then your name and address in the body, and uh, we'll send you out some out. Absolutely. So what do we have for the comment of the week? Yes, uh, we got a uh, a comment on Twitter from Mike Tapau saying, "Hi, MSF Show. I got approval to go to the uh, to go to that conference. See you guys there." And mm-hmm. uh, just as a reminder, not only are we going to be there at that conference, so you guys can meet us and talk to us there, but we're going to be at Build too, and that's coming up in actually it'll be over in two weeks. That's crazy. <laughs> it's really sneaking up on us. Yeah, but we're going to be at Build, and we're actually going to be all over Build. We're going to be at the the podcast booth. And then we're going to be just kind of wandering and doing all sorts of other little things for Microsoft as well. So uh, if you see us, feel free to come up to us and say hi. We love it when people do that. And I might just have some swag on me. Absolutely. And then we're going to go talk to the, the Raygun folks, too, because they're such a such a great sponsor. So we're going to go over there. We'll probably drop some stickers there. So I know it's a little bit more difficult to find us. So if you go over to the Raygun booth, even if, if they don't have them out, <laughs> hopefully they'll put them out. But even if they don't put them out, just ask them and, and we'll get them to hand uh, to hand you some uh, some swag. So we haven't told them yet, but we'll make it happen. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm, I'm like <laughs> being very careful with my promises here. Like, yeah, the stickers are gonna be all over the place and there's gonna be a big banner. No. <laughs> so worst case, I'm sure that they will hold them behind the scenes for us. And then you can go over there and grab them. So in fact, it's probably better to go over there and get them because, um, you you know, obviously our sponsor would love to have everybody come up and talk about the podcast. So that'd be very cool. So how do, how do people get mentioned on the show, Carl? 
If you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on our website or on Twitter, and we especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Yes, we need to pull uh, pull a comment for the next episode from uh, from iTunes. So everybody get out there and, and leave a good review, and we'll take a look at it. Okay, so let's jump into the news, because I think we have some really interesting news stories going on. Uh, so the first one here, actually, this one is not new by any means. I don't remember. I had this thing bookmarked a long time ago. I have no idea how I found it. So I don't know if it was Carl who gave it to me or somebody else, but it's uh, how the Age of Empire Two uh, AI thinks. And uh, did you get a chance to watch this one, Carl? I, I watched the first half of it, and I, I yeah, thought it was really interesting. Uh, you know, they they show about like uh, you know talking about you know the strategies that it used, and they actually showed code and talked to the developer of the code on like how it you know how it decided what to do when and where. And, you know, I think this is really interesting because when we talk about like AI in games, I I think we kind of conflate that with AI as in like machine learning and artificial intelligence. uh, Because, you know, I I heard a statement a long time ago about AI that it's like nothing but a bunch of if statements. And that was a jest. And literally this the code that they showed was nothing but if statements. No, it's it's even simpler than that. It's not even code. It's literally yeah. a text file, which I guess I guess you could call it rudimentary code. But it's literally like, you know, hey, if if you know wood is less than 175 and we're trying to, you know, attack over in this one place, then you know, start cutting down trees. Like it's it's literally like giant, like you said, if statements in in like this. Uh, I don't think that I think this is just like a domain specific language that they, that they just invented for this. But it's like tens of thousands of lines of logic. I mean, somebody painstakingly went through and and built this thing. So it's it is not. It is definitely not like. I was expecting like a couple thousand lines of code that somebody wrote to like make the thing smart, uh, but it really is just if statements. And and I know you really played this game quite a bit, so yeah, yeah, it's super fun. Like I I always I I'll play it against my uh, my dad, for example. Um, it's a fun one just to play against friends. The biggest issue is like whenever you have uh, a difference in uh, you know a big difference in skill. And the, the AI there, there, and they even mentioned it in this video, there's a big difference between, uh, what is it? Normal mode, I think. And, or what is it? Easy and moderate. There's like this giant leap. Um, so on like easy mode, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to, to just like crush, you know, crush the AI. And then, uh, it's like a totally different level to, to beat this thing on, on moderate, but it's, it's way, 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 way more fun to play against actual humans. And my dad and I will have a, we'll have a Skype call going and, uh, and then, and then we can, you know, sit there and give each other crap about what we're doing or, you know, just psych them out too. like, you know, Hey, I have a hundred of these units and I'm coming to get you. <laughs> so it's, uh, I find it a lot of fun. Anything else you want to mention on the AI? Any comments, Brady? Is this a game you played? Uh, I have not played it that much, but I think I commented you guys right before the show started. I think I'm more excited about one of the ads. there uh my sons and i love to play magic the gathering uh the old school style with the actual paper cards um but there is an ad that i've seen twice now and i can't get enough of it uh apparently there's a game called arena um and i took a screenshot of the ad and sent it to my son he's probably already installing it so uh (laughs) we'll have to play that later that looks like a lot of fun oh that's cool that's very cool Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you're right that was a bunch of if statements I, i scrolled through i watched that scroll and that was 
<laughs> it was almost boring. <laughs> yeah. So. It's crazy. I would have never, that would have never been my guess. I mean, I had no idea how it was built, but I would have never guessed that it was, it's literally a whole bunch of statements like that. Exactly. I mean, it's incredibly exactly. sophisticated. Whenever you're playing against it, the, the enemy looks so intelligent, but it's because, you know, a human who obviously understands the game very well, uh, went through and, and programmed in those rules. Um, okay. Cool. Accenture sued over website redesign so bad it hurts. Car hire biz demands 32 million, over $32 million for defective cyber revamp. So basically, uh, hurts the car company. They decided that they did not have enough, de- or they didn't have developers that could build their new online presence. And I always wondered how this happened because, like, a lot of these these e-commerce or these companies like this just have terrible, terrible, terrible websites. Well, now we're getting a glimpse into how that actually happens. Uh, they went to Accenture, who kept throwing, I guess, different – well, allegedly, I guess we have to say, you know, like, different people on this. And um, I don't know. Like, they were supposed to deliver a uh, – um, a responsive site, but they actually built like a desktop site and a mobile site. And then, and then they wanted to charge a third time for a tablet site. Um, and, and they go, if you go through and read all the claims that, uh, that Hertz is making, like, this is just, this is just a horrible situation. I mean, they kept throwing money at the problem and they're in over $32 million. So it'd be very interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is, you know, that, you know, when you think about like using a consulting company, you know, this is like the worst possible story that you could hear. Like everything that you had in a contract was violated. And, you know, just to fix the stuff that they broke on purpose was, you know, like an upcharge and upcharge. They even had uh, talked about that in, in addition to the not having a responsive site that they had asked for it to be themable so they could use it for their other brands. Cause Hertz has more than one brand and they kind of like hard coded it just to the North American brand. Right. So they couldn't even use it elsewhere. So it's <laughs> like, like everywhere in there uh, was just like, you know, they put that in the contract that we need all of this and, and they didn't do it. So, you know, I, I think what makes this really interesting though, is just the scale of what's being sued for, mm-hmm. you know, $32 million <laughs> is by, by all means and, you know, an unfathomable number. And uh, you know, it's, it's crazy that at the end of this, that you can spend that much money and have nothing usable at the end of it. Yeah, I know like on uh, Twit, for example, like Leo has talked about how they, um, I think he spent $250,000 on like this mobile responsive site and they ended up scrapping, they ended up scrapping that at one point. Um, but like their whole redesign and their rebranding, um, I believe cost them over a million dollars. It is unbelievable the, the, the scale and the cost that these things are. And it also shows you too, like, to me, one of the biggest things for a project like this is to mix, have a good mix of like very experienced developers along with junior developers. Um, I feel like some of these projects, especially at some of these consulting companies, you know, you will get people that are, that are fresh out of college and like not, nothing against them. Like they have, they have energy and, but what they're missing is the, is the experience. You know, it's not the talent or the skill, it's just the experience. And, uh, you know, so like in this case, I just imagine that, that like, all these developers were like writing something in good faith and just didn't know how to do this or that. And, and I feel like having experienced people like at, at the right places, doing the right checks with like the, the right ability to sort of put on the brakes and say, Hey, like we're not doing the right thing here uh, really would have gone a long way. 
Yeah, that's uh, that is a tough story. I've, I've worked <laughs> as a consultant for a number of years, and I won't name any names, but I heard of a similar story. Um, a, f- a friend was in a consulting firm, and his firm got sued, not for thirty-two million dollars, but it was um, it was actually by a community organization, and I think he. He had a quote, uh, nameless organization. You would have never thought they would have sued us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I've seen this, right? Like I've been at a consulting company and, and I've seen, I mean, they, they always want to, I mean, they want to put less experienced people on there because they, the, the Delta between what they pay the person and what they're able to charge is, is larger. And, uh, you know, if you are uh, using one of these places, and there's plenty of reputable places out there, I think you you have to know you can't just blindly trust them, and you do have to kind of figure out who the the good people are on the project and uh, make sure that they stay on it and that they that they have a voice in the in the project and that all those voices are heard. I, I there's no way that this whole project went along and everybody was like, "This is fine," <laughs> you know, everything's burning down around them, and they're like. Nope, everything's fine. It's this is all good. Like there, I, I promise you, half the team was like, "What the heck is going on here? This is oh, yeah. this should not be going like this." So the fact that they were just like silenced is is a you know allegedly. I'll just say allegedly on on everything. And we'll like I said over time, we'll wait and uh, we'll wait and see how this how this plays out as uh, as details emerge. You know, maybe right, we're I think we're only getting one side of the story right now, so mm-hmm. we'll see. Reminds me of the whole uh, healthcare.gov thing. Um, and how that was oh, like a giant mess. That. And yeah, <laughs> you have to remind me of that one. Oh, that was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Was it's like so many of these projects are giant or I should say are failures. And uh, every once in a while we hear about the giant failures, um, but projects are failing all the time. So anyway, let's, I think it's not, yeah, go ahead. yeah I, th- I think it's, I think it's not only a commentary on younger or inexperienced devs. I also think there's something there for consulting firms who become complacent because their contracts continually get renewed. Mm-hmm. You have to be careful about that. I, th- I think sometimes you, you, you get in the habit of checking the box because the company's always checked the box for you before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So just be careful out there people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's move on to a more positive story. Um, Please. Why we why we think the galaxy folds are failing? <laughs> so what is the de- what is the deal with this? Like people, uh, the, you know, Sam Samsung announced this thing, and I think I I, I believe why we said it on the show, and I I think I was trying to be nice about it, but I was like I, I know that I made a comment, and I ha- maybe I'll have to go and look it up, but it was a comment like, how do you build something like this without it breaking? Like this is such a super yeah. impossible design thing like hinges break on laptops like I, th- I feel like we've gotten that figured out but we haven't tried to like curl a screen around that and and deal with that it's a whole new level of complexity oh that's so bad yeah yeah so so we have this article from i fix it and one of the things i like it is they're used to tearing things apart and figuring out how things work and you know they they have a lot of commentary on how oled screens work and just like how how fragile they are. I mean, one of the nice things about them is that you can bend and curve them and do things with them. But in the past, what we kind of do is like, you might curve it like on some of the earlier Samsung phones, like around a corner or something, but then you like lock it in, in, in exactly. glass or plastic and just make it immovable. You know, one of the things that make uh, a lot of modern smartphones so dur- durable is there's zero moving parts. Like Apple even removed the button. Right. So, so you, you yeah. can't, t- your button doesn't even move anymore. And like, I feel like th- we're pretty good at making buttons, but still they're just like, Hey, they still fail. It moves. Yeah. So we, we go from that aspect where we have, you know, a fairly reliable device like that. And now let's change it. So we're like, 
adding I, I don't even want to guess how many pieces are inside these hinges that make the you know this the two halves attached and 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 bend and and guide the screen that doesn't um have distinct halves in them to fold up i mean that we're talking dozens hundreds thousands of of pieces all of which of them could fail and any one failure could render this thing useless uh, I think the other thing that, you know, makes it, you know, bigger is this device costs $2,000. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, you know, just a year ago, we were complaining about how expensive the high end iPhones are at like what, 12 or $1,300. Yeah. I'm still complaining. It looks like Brady has the exact phone that I have, by the way. <laughs> the, the only, so but, yeah. Well, have a cool yeah, sticker on it. I know we're not doing video, but I think you have the exact same one. Is that, is that exactly. the, did you get the yeah. one with more storage too or not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we, we have identical, we are identical phone twins, uh, down to the color, the size, the storage. And I was like, I, I almost felt like ill when I bought this phone. It sounds so bad. Like I, I obviously buy like some things that are more expensive. You know, my laptop was almost $4,000. Like oh, yeah. I get that, but still spending 1250 on a phone. I just was like, oh, it's just, oh, it's so painful. And, and I think, we're just at a point where like we have, to, I think we have to kind of get used to it. Cause I don't think they're going down anytime soon. No. Well, this, this, the, the videos in this, like I have to go watch it. This one at the, uh, the unbox therapy guy at the bottom where mm-hmm. he's, he's doing it 1000 times. Like <laughs> I have to watch that. I have to see if he actually does it a thousand times. I mean, that is that, that is like respectful level OCD stuff. That's cool. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I, I Oh like, yeah. I see. Okay. I didn't even see that yeah. video in there. That's crazy. Yeah, that's great. Like this dude's like, Oh my God, I'm folding. folding. Well, here's the thing. Um, like with, I know with surface, like we, we have machines that sit there and they just like beat the crap out of them all day. And, uh, Samsung, I mean, they have to have a machine. Well, that this, not only- this article even talks about that. You okay. know, it's like, yeah. you know, people open and close these phones differently than the machines do. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a problem. It has to vary. Like, yeah, because sometimes you'll like put pressure. Because you know, I'm pretty good at it. If I had one of these devices, I mean, I, I would be, I would look at it and I would sort of figure out how do I not stress oh, yeah. all the components on it. Yeah. But I would hand I'm it to my wife, and this. yeah, if I gave it to my wife, she would be like, like you know, try to rip it apart on my kids or something, oh, and uh, that would freak me out. Um, mm. I don't know. This just seems like a bad idea, and. I'm sure like they can figure out how to make it good. You know, like once, once we, once a couple of years have elapsed, I'm sure yeah. it'll be great, but I will not spend $2,000. I do love, I do love the idea. Like if my phone, if I could double the screen size on demand, I, I would be a fan of that. Yeah. Have you seen the, uh, the Xbox, uh, controller testing machine? Have you no. seen this? It's like no. the size of Volkswagen. Okay. And uh, DevDiv, we have this thing. It's kind of an internal expo called the One ES Expo, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and each DevDiv team kind of shows off what they're doing. Uh, they brought that machine in. That was so cool. It's loaded with Xbox controllers. Yeah. And they're spinning the stick, and then the stick is going. It's like it's like an ultimate Konami code. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, puncher <laughs> forever and ever and ever. <laughs> Um, and they would load it up with like nine or 10, uh, controllers and they would just be testing. And, and mm-hmm. I can't imagine how many times they push those buttons, but l- looking at this, these videos, I mean, bendable OLED screens. I mean, everything sounds wrong with that. It just <laughs> sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Cause they were talking about the gap at the edge for like getting dust into like the screen right. and then just any hinge, right. And a hinge on a laptop is one thing. Like I, I literally take my, 
uh, laptop and I put it in like this protective case and then I put it in my bag. And but this phone, it's going to go in my pocket. And, you know, I've had times where my phone was like sideways in my pocket and I'll go to like work on my truck or something. Right. And I like bend over or something. And I'm like, I know I'm like torquing the crap out of the thing. But fortunately, it's like it's just a, it's just like a solid brick. If it had hinges, mm-hmm. I would crush it. <laughs> Anything. Yeah, and the, uh, anyway. they even talk about they even talk about uh, OLED screens. They're they're very sensitive to moisture, oxygen, particulates. Like oxygen, like, <laughs> and, and, then, and then in addition, Earth. they're pretty good in the coldness of space. Yeah. <laughs> and then in addition, it it doesn't do localized damage. Like you'll get like a the entire screen will fail if any piece of it fails. So it's yeah. not like oh you know I lost a few pixels at the bottom. Like no, like those few pixels go, the whole screen goes. Yeah. So anyway, to make a long story short, these things are all failing. Um, the reviewers do the, have you heard There's, there's the, there's like, it looks like there's a screen protector on it. And if you try to yeah. peel off the screen protector, it just destroys the device. <laughs> but there, but there is a small warning somewhere in the manual. So well, the original ones didn't come with the warning. Okay. Well, the new ones have a tiny warning somewhere. So I have to watch this video later. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Matt Veloso is the only person who is like, he's, he's taken the plunge. He wants it as soon as he can get it. And, you know, wrinkles and all, <laughs> so to speak. Well, anyway, we should, uh, we should move on. Um, these are the features Microsoft turned off or replaced in Chromium based edge. Yeah. So if you, if you go to the uh, link in the show notes, you'll see that there's a, a list of, uh, you know, I didn't count them, maybe uh, 40, 50 different services that are w- in Google Chrome, that when uh, Edge-based uh, or Chrome with Edge or Edge with Chrome, Chromium, <laughs> whatever we're gonna call it, whatever whatever we're calling it, Edgeium, I like to call it. Yeah, being um, with Google, either either <laughs> uh, removed completely or replaced with Microsoft-based technologies, and you know some of them are stuff that you would think are obvious that are you know, entirely uh, Google-based technologies, but other things like even like uh, spell check. It has been replaced with Microsoft-based um, ones, as well as the the stores, the geolocation, uh, the speech inputs. So, uh, if you're comparing the browsers, this is kind of useful to see. Like, what if I'm going to use, uh, you know, EdgeM or Bing with Chrome, however you want to call that, versus Full Chrome? Um, you know, what are the things that I care about, and you know. You know, maybe you want to use them side by side for a while to see uh, which ones are are more interesting to you. Yeah, I, I've tried the the browser and um, I think it's great. What what is mind blowing to me is that you can in, in, install extensions from the Chrome Store. Um, that sort of puts it on a level playing field. But I really don't trust Google. I really don't trust anybody. But you know, there's some companies I trust a little bit more. And um, I don't know. I feel like you know Google because of their whole model. I mean, they're trying to learn everything about you and then target ads and whatever. Like I've sort of accepted that, but, um, I just, I don't want to intentionally give them, uh, more information if I can avoid it. So that's why I'm excited about this, uh, um, Chromium version of, of edge. And like, it's fast. I mean, I think it opens this, the same speed, maybe faster than Chrome. Uh, I, I did some browser tests. It's, you know, it's the same speed as Chrome, which makes sense. Cause it has the same engine. Um, there's really like, there's not many reasons not to use it unless one of the features on this list is is missing. But um, you know they're adding in features very quickly, so I suspect you know right now just because it's 
I feel like they might just delete my bookmarks in one of the builds or something because I'm running like weekly builds. <laughs> That's the only reason I'm not using it as like my daily driver. But like I'm just waiting uh, to just switch over. Like I don't, I don't think there's going to be much pain in in switching over, and I'll I'll feel a little better about Microsoft producing the browser versus versus Chrome. If just being honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been using the one with daily builds, and I've I've only had one issue and. They update it daily, and they had it uh, fixed in two days. So okay. it, very responsive on that side. And obviously, you wouldn't see that in the weekly builds. But um, yeah, I've been very impressed in using it for for a while now. Have you been using it as your main browser yet or not? I I, I have, uh, but I was just on vacation, so that was a, a short <laughs> period of time. So even though I, okay. I, I did that like two, week, two weeks ago, it's only been like a few days of actual right. real-life usage. Right, right, exactly. What about you, Brady? I um, I'm on a Mac, so I haven't installed it. Um, yeah. I I've got Parallels, so I should probably install it and give no, it. No, no, no. You, um, you, no. It's on Mac too. I oh, don't, it's on Mac. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that one's public yet. I don't. I don't know if it is. Um, yeah, but you can. But, but you can grab it. I mean, I'm running it on the Mac. Oh, oh you are. Uh, yeah. what do you think I think it says not that. I think. I think the page has not to talk about it though, so I'm not going to say anything more else. Okay. okay. <laughs> 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 so I'm not going to talk about it, but uh, it does exist, and I like it. And hopefully cool. I'm not. Cool. And hopefully I'm not saying too much. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, that's that's why that's why I'm not using it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but it it absolutely exists. Yes, I just I okay. I don't I don't think it's on the public page yet. Maybe it is. I I just don't know. I mean, as far as browsers go, I just really want WebAssembly to become a a done thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I work on the on the ASP.NET Core team. And Blazor is kind of a big deal to us. So, right. you know, the, the the sooner we can get Blazor everywhere, the better. Yeah, so, yeah. Right. Oh, Blazor is super so, cool. Yeah, all I care about is WebAssembly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so one more story, and then we'll get into questions here. So Microsoft changes how Windows 10 disconnects USB storage devices. I think it should have always worked like this, but go ahead, Carl. Yeah, so one of the things I didn't realize is there are several modes on how Windows <clears throat> treats your USB. And for the longest time, uh, it's been... Uh, uh, set to better performance, which means that like when you, uh, you know, transfer data to and from a USB drive, it'll cache that and kind of, uh, keep that. So when you, when an app requests for data that's been transferred, uh, it can use it from that buffer instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's another setting that, uh, allows you to, uh, wait for all of those reads and writes to happen and it doesn't do any caching. So things could take a little bit longer if you're accessing it a lot, but with that, you can just yank it and not have to worry about that little dialogue to eject it. Um, which a lot of people find to be a pain. And I know that, you know, sometimes you can risk it because a lot of USB drives, you know, they handle it fine. Uh, but I know that with some of the audio gear that we have for recording that never handles it fine. If you yank it, you are talking about a reformat. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a couple of things at play there. I think there's the caching. And then I think with the file, depending on the file system, it's how it handles basically transactions uh, in that. And the, the transactions probably fall into the caching category as well. Right. So it, it, it thinks it's committed it and it actually hasn't committed it. And then you've pulled the drive and now you, you have something half written on the, on the drive. Um, yeah, I actually knew that there were two settings on this. Um, I think it was around when USB first came out, you know, it was like, there were articles on like, Hey, why do I have to tell this thing to safely remove this? And when do I have to do this? When do I not have to do this? So I remember reading about it, uh, way back then. 
And uh, yeah, I th- I think this is just so much better. So the, it's in the version I, of Windows I think that came out last year. That's that's fine. This rolled out pretty wide stream. Uh, that build of Windows 10, and um, yeah. So I mean, it's just a better setting. Like if we can trade twenty percent performance on a USB drive, um, but just let people yank it out, then I think that makes sense. The only time I would ever recommend changing it is if you have like a permanent external drive then just go into your disk management and just switch that drive and, and just be, be done with it. So yeah, no, I, I think this just makes more sense. I think we should value safety over performance uh, by default. And then the people who need the performance, let them switch it. So makes sense to me. I would agree with you. And I would say you know, this, I, I, that's one area of windows that I definitely prefer over uh, the Mac OS is, um, the, you know, m- you know, Mac users, you know, let, let me know if I'm crazy here, but I always feel like the Mac OS is scolding me when I remove it without doing the whole process of, you know, clicking the arrow and saying safely remove. Yeah. It, it feels like I'm at the dentist's office. I mean, my Mac literally is like, dude, you did it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the Mac, it, it has this, it, 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 it's always the user's fault. Uh, that's the way that it acts. In fact, uh, they check Perfect. about this on ATP all the time where, uh, if your computer crashes, it says the message is, it is really frustrating. I, I find it insulting too. It says you, sh- you shut down your computer because of a pro or yeah, it says something about you shut down your computer due to a problem or something, but it like blames the user yeah. for the crash. <laughs> and it's just like, no, this was not my choice. Next time, give me a choice and I'll say, no, don't crash. So yeah, that's just <laughs> OS 10 has that, it has that, uh, I don't know. It, it, there's some cockiness built into it for sure. <laughs> yeah, that that and the keyboard. I'm 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 finally. This is the first time I'm operating a, a computer missing a key other than the caps lock key, which I take off on purpose. But um, it I, I've I'm suffering from the from the the keys popping off problem that the 2017 MacBooks have. Oh, like they're popping um, off? I haven't heard of that like one. Mike, the most important key for a programmer, the command key, is gone. Um, and the worst part is we have two team rooms and it fell off in one of the team rooms and I got up and walked to the other team room and it was gone, gone. Like it's yeah. gone. Um, and you we can't were, put like, it back on around. either. They're not no, designed no, to be like put back on. No. And I called it and they were like, that's like a $1,200 blah. I'm like, Oh God, please. Seriously. <laughs> like, and I bet, I bet I have to give you my computer for like end days. They're like, yeah. I'm like, this is just, it's like, it's like your, uh, the the dog in hell cartoon again yeah 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 exactly <laughs> this is fine so, that's yeah, unbelievable so apple is now doing like I, it was either same day or next day turnaround on fixing the keyboards but um oh cool yeah yeah no they 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 all they're terrible they're terrible mine does mm-hmm. the whole like you know sometimes it'll just start like double clicking certain letters certain keys will quit working it is just it, that is atrocious they need to fix i haven't that. had that i, I yeah. do love this machine though it's been very nice yeah yeah so anyway, let's talk about something actually more positive. I That's think lovely. did we have any positive news stories? Uh, I guess the Microsoft change, the Microsoft one about the storage devices. Oh, and the in the Age of Empires too. But let's get into a, a much more positive topic, which I think is yeah. such a cool topic, which is Signal R. So um, I think we should just start with in case people haven't heard of it or haven't used it. I've actually used it quite a bit and in, in, mm-hmm. in the past uh but what is signal r and then i'll all i guess my my question that i'm also going to hook onto that one is how has it been like used over the years because like i think signal r has been out for a long time it has been it has been mm-hmm. uh so what is signal r um the way i like to the way i like to describe it is that it is basically an abstraction um <clears throat> and the the sad thing is that i think signal r was more romantic when it came out <laughs> 
prior to, you know, WebSockets kind of being everywhere and there being, you know, WebSockets are relatively ubiquitous now. Um, but when SignalR came out, uh, they weren't. So uh, the way I kind of like to uh, talk about SignalR is it's an abstraction over the concept of doing real-time HTTP. Um, so to break that down in terms of a metaphor, uh, if you can remember from your consulting days or, you know, early when you were just building websites, you might have a PM come to you and say, so I don't want the user to have to refresh the page. We've all heard that. You know. um, so you would write something where you would just keep polling or you would, you know, when server sent events came out, you would you know, use server sent events um, when WebSockets came out. Um, but we all know that WebSockets is not going to be the last, you know, cool thing that comes out for HTTP. Um, that would that would be a fallacy. Um, so the, if you wanted to like do the real time stuff, uh, you know, once WebSockets came out, if you just went to raw WebSockets, a it's kind of a complicated programming model. Um, uh, Jeff Fritz and I have worked on the Elgato Stream Deck, and it has a WebSockets API that doesn't use SignalR, and that was really painful to use. Um, but if you wanted to do something along that, um, you know, if if you just wrote to WebSockets uh, seven years ago, people might not be able to use it. Whereas if you use long polling, they might not you know, be as responsive as you want it to be. But, you know, if you write to SignalR, whenever the new WebSockets thing comes out, uh, we'll put a layer on top of it and it'll just work. Uh, the nice thing uh, is that, uh, like, uh, let's say you deploy an application to, you know, Azure App Service. Um, Azure App Service has WebSockets turned off by default, um, you know, kind of going back in history, remember a lot, a lot of browsers didn't support it. So they turned it off by default because it was such a minimal browser support out there. Um, so uh, whenever you would connect, you would connect over long polling or a service and events. The nice thing is SignalR would try WebSockets. We have this uh, concept called negotiation. It would try WebSockets, and if it fails, it'll back off, try service and events. If that fails, it'll back off and try long polling. So that's kind of what it is from a, from a abstraction perspective. Yeah, and and I I like that it that it fails back to something that works. I mean, I think that's that's like one of the big advantages, right? Like, I don't have to I don't have to know. I and to this day, I don't know how to use a WebSocket by itself, but I just use SignalR. It's really simple. Yeah. And if if there is some old technology involved on the on the client side, for example, or on the server side or whatever, um, I don't have to deal with it. I don't. I don't. I would have to think long and hard about how long polling works or how these other methods work. Oh yeah, uh, but SignalR is easy to use, so it is. that's it what is. I like about it. I mean, it's it's great because effectively the API is I'm either invoking a method or I'm responding to an event. And if you think about what you would want your syntax to look like in an API, you would want to have invoke or call, um, and then how would you want to handle an event with an on? You know, and that's exactly what we do in SignalR. We say on, and we pass the name of the event we're handling, and then you know, an array of parameters that might be coming in. Um, at first, we used Dynamics everywhere, and that uh, that made a lot of people uncomfortable, uh, like John Skeet. Uh, he and I had a pretty colorful conversation once about C-sharp dynamic, um, and that made people kind of uncomfortable because we would literally be using, like, string trickery, you know, like, I want to call the, the send, send message method and pass it a message, um, um, but I might pass it a message, and then a second thing, I might, you know, change the parameter list and make it a, a bigger object. Um, for me, C-sharp dynamic was kind of an uncomfortable thing until I did SignalR. Once I did SignalR, I went, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, unfortunately, I also kind of got Ruby at that point and got JavaScript better. It was like kind of the, the idea opened up. So, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but uh, we've got two kind of flavors of SignalR. I think the one that you, you've you used a bit was the ASP.NET SignalR. Right. And I hate, the, I hate the naming. I have to say, I wish we could do one, two, three, it'd be easier. Um, 
but we had ASP.NET SignalR, which is built on top of the ASP.NET framework. Um, and then we have ASP.NET Core SignalR, which is obviously built on top of ASP.NET Core. Um, we're definitely putting all of our investments in the core stuff. Um, and one thing that we did when we went to core was we actually wrote a uh, specification. So we actually have a hub specification, kind of like the ACTP specification or any other protocol. Uh, we actually wrote a protocol spec. So if you wanted to write a SignalR client in Python, uh, as long as you adhere to that spec, it'll work. Um, and we've actually got that spec in GitHub and the ASP.NET Core repository um, for everybody to take a peek at. So if you wanted to write a Rust client or a Go client, you would you know, have the protocol specification to be able to do that. So. Okay, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Raygun provides full stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes. Dramatically improve the online experience of your users. So what else is different between the ASP.NET and Core versions, especially since the core one's a lot newer? Uh, what, what, what's different between the, you know, the original iteration and the newer one? Okay, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. There are quite a few differences. Our doc page uh, has one page up that kind of articulates some of the, different, some of the differences between the two. Uh, I would definitely refer to that for like, you know, kind of the, kind of the nitty gritty. Um, I've already talked about one of them, uh, one being that we actually have a, a protocol specification now. Um, so when people ask me a question, well, I've got this WebSocket endpoint, can't I just put SignalR on top of it? I'm like, no. Uh, you know, WebSockets is a transport. SignalR is a, pr- a protocol, if you will. Um, and that protocol basically flows over the transport. You know, another transport is going to be, uh, you know, long pulling. Uh, it's just, you know, kind of the mechanism that we use to uh, transport the messages. We also support a message pack now. It used to only be JSON. Uh, so now we actually support message pack. So if you wanted to do binary serialization, you could do that. That was something that we were missing in the original implementation. Mm. Um, good, good bit faster. Uh, definitely adds a few caveats. You got to think about things uh, a little bit differently. Another thing that we've done, uh, I think it came out in .NET Core 2.2, uh, was we added streaming. <clears throat> and um, I'll say this carefully, uh, server to client streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, that already exists in .NET Core 2.2 and above. Um, uh, the recent releases that we put out already have that. Uh, but another thing that we are adding in .NET Core 3.0, we've already released it in one of the previews, is client to server streaming. Um, we've got I did a video with uh, uh, the amazing Cecil uh, Phillips on Channel 9 a couple weeks back. And one of the things that we talked about was a streaming demo that we have called Streamer, obviously. Uh, where you actually it hooks into the uh, to the uh, camera in the browser and actually uses JavaScript to uh, take your take your picture um, like the uh, full mo- full motion video and in the browser it will actually convert the image data to ASCII art send the ASCII art up to the server once it hits the server the server will then bounce it out to all the connected clients and it will render. So if you wanted to see that right now, you could go to yeah, streamr, uh, you know, you know, no, no trailing e, streamr.azurewebsites.net, and you could give it a try, um, give it a shot. Um, but uh, we've got that demo out online, and we've also got it in uh, GitHub in the uh, SignalR organization uh, uh, on GitHub. So if you wanted to download that code and party on it, you could do that. Um, oh, it's actually another- you can share my camera. That's cool. Yeah, Nicole. Yeah, neat. Um, uh, another thing that we uh, did, um, and this is something that plagued some folks, but I would I would ask them, 
you know, if you've used ASP.NET Signal R and you had a couple of issues with it, or you noticed this problem or that bug or whatever, um, I would say uh, he's, he's playing with the thing. <laughs> yeah, sorry, right. I'm probably <laughs> distracting, <laughs> like, dancing yeah. around. Everybody does that. It's it's it's, it's a fun to watch people do that demo. Yeah. Um, uh, one other thing that we did was uh, we used to do this uh, quasi-intelligent thing where we would, uh, you know, automatically reconnect you. And once we automatically reconnected you, we would replay all the messages that you missed. That is a bad idea on a real-time client because what ends up happening is you use up a whole lot of memory on the server and things crash, you know, so that's bad. Um, We don't do that anymore. Um, And and when I say anymore, I'm going to caveat it. Uh, As of .NET Core, we stopped doing the automatic reconnection. So you would actually have to do the reconnection yourself, either in JavaScript.NET or any of the other clients that we have. Uh, you'd have to do that yourself until .NET Core 3.0 Preview 5, I believe, because we've put reconnection back in. <laughs> so we're actually putting reconnection back in, and we're giving uh, uh, devs kind of a nice hook to be able to do that reconnection themselves. Um, and I think we're adding in two styles. One would be like exponential back off, and one would be try n times over n seconds. So we're adding that back in. It's going to be opt-in. So if you're currently using ASP.NET Core Signal R and you've gotten used to having to do your own reconnection, um, you'll still have to, you'll opt into this and it'll do it for you. Um, but we're never going to add that replay bit back. That's not going to happen. Um, that, that's when you want to get into something like queuing or you want to have kind of, um, uh, the way I think about SignalR is you've got your enterprise message bus, something like service bus, or you're using queues or MSMQ. <clears throat> and that's kind of what you do to do your durable messaging. And you would put SignalR on top of that to kind of show your UI what's happening. Um, I definitely wouldn't encourage folks to use SignalR for, you know, durable enterprise pub sub. That's not really what it's for. Uh, you can make it do that, but you're going to end up writing a bunch of code around it um, to do things like counting, uh, you know, counting messages as they go and as they get received. So that's something you would have to do yourself. We're not going to do that for you. Okay. Um, that's a that's a bad that's a bad game. So okay. I've seen a lot of people do that. And what I would encourage you to do is, if you see in your code that you're starting to do a bunch of if statements and logic around SignalR to kind of make it durable or make it do things it's not supposed to do, back up. <laughs> so yeah, back up. Okay. And then I see that there's uh there's this new, well, I shouldn't say new, I guess it's been up for a while now, but there's a SignalR service. Exactly. So exactly. I can obviously like run <clears throat> SignalR myself within my application on my own server. Um, so like what, what do I get when I use this, the official service? That's a, that's a great question. So when you were doing SignalR in the past, um, I'll answer your question with a question because it's always so pleasant when folks do that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when you were doing SignalR in the past, did you ever have to do SignalR in a web farm environment? Uh, yes. And that was a huge pain because of the, the back, you know, there were different backplane providers to allow them yeah. to talk to each other. And they, <laughs> none of them are fun, right? Right. Uh, exactly. um, this, this is that, but way better. Okay. Um, so, so the idea behind SignalR is that hub. <clears throat> SignalR has this kind of a core concept. It's a, it's an abstract class or a series of classes. Uh, the hub, the hub of T. If you wanted to have like a strongly typed client, um, and then also the dynamic hub, which is kind of if you've done SignalR, uh, you know, you know, original SignalR, um, it, you know, it's more like the dynamic client uh, or the dynamic hub we have now. So the idea is that hub lives on the server and there's a hub context, just like there's an HTTP context Mm -hmm. and all of your clients connect to that hub, but that hub lives, this is important, on that server. So if you have to slide the slider to the right and you have N servers, 
Now you've got one hub on each server. So if, if, if I connect to server A and Carl connects to server B and you connect to server C and we start sending messages, we're going to be sending messages back and forth to ourselves. It's not going to go anywhere. So you would put a backplane behind those servers and that backplane basically routes messages back and forth to all the servers. <clears throat> what the SignalR service does is it, 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 kind of, it kind of puts it on the front. So instead of your WebSocket traffic going through your application, just like your normal HTTP uh, traffic goes through your application, it actually sends your sends your WebSocket traffic. Pardon me, somebody popped into my room. It sends your WebSocket traffic over to uh, the Azure SignalR service, and the Azure SignalR service does all your WebSocketry, and your your uh, web server or your app service can handle all your normal requests. Um, the way it does that is you actually off like you know, security is obviously going to be a concern. Uh, you actually off to your app. Your app gets a token. Then we pass that token over to. Oh, that's interesting. The, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, like a token within a token. Yeah. So now you're off to your app and to the SignalR service, and it, it just does that communication. Now on the back end, um, if you have a hub on the server, and that's very important because there is a serverless you know concept here. Um, if you have a hub, what ends up happening is instead of you having 100,000 connections to your hub on the front end going through you know, your, your, your front door or your proxy, now you've got all those connections going to the SignalR service, and the SignalR service actually has a SignalR connection or five back to your application on the server side. So your app is communicating with the service on the server side. Your client is communicating with the service on the client side, and then the messages are getting routed appropriately. But it's only five or six connections versus five or six hundred thousand connections. Yeah, that's so that. Op- that solves yeah the number one issue, which was those backplanes. Because you had to like choose like, do you want to use like Service Bus or do you want to use like Redis as a backplane? And it's like, oh okay, well I have to set up this other thing, and then I have to like tell it how to talk, and it was just like it was a lot of work. Then then I was really just crossing my fingers, and I'm like. I think I could just use one server and I think, you know, <laughs> signal R is pretty fast. So, yeah. so we'll be okay. <laughs> and you're like, never mind. <laughs> now, There's now, probably a lot of people uh, that do that. <laughs> a lot of people do that. You'd be, it was, it was staggeringly shocking how many people did that, including myself. It's really painful. Um, what I would say there is like signal is such a fun technology to use. And it's almost like, uh, I always, you know, quote, Arthur C. Clarke, whenever I do a SignalR presentation, you know, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and for people, when they first started learning about SignalR, it was kind of a, it was difficult to adjust to it because you, know, you always think of HTTP as a non-persistent connection. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, But then the, the, the service also provides uh, a serverless capacity. So you could actually do, the, do everything that we described for the most part with a couple caveats. Um, uh, by using the, the serverless version of it. And in the serverless version, what you end up having is, uh, sorry, Mr. Hunter's texting me. Uh, you yeah. end up having, um, you end up having a, uh, um, uh, like a function, uh, like an Azure function, the Azure function would actually send a message into the SignalR service. And then the SignalR service would outbound that message to all of its connected clients. That's so it's cool. kind of a way for you to use something, uh, uh, you know, you could actually use the service without having a hub. Now, the one thing I would say there is, if you're using the service without having a hub, you can't really do invocations. You can't send things upstream. You would have to do that from within your function. So I do want to call that out. Um, we're working on that so that we would have parity in a serverless capacity, but right now we don't we don't have that. So, okay. so how much ceremony is there to using SignalR? Is there something where I gotta like write a ton of code, or is this something I just a, a few lines of code on a on the hub and on a client I can get up and running? Pardon me. 
Say say that one more time. I'm sorry. I was I was replying to Mr. Hunter. Oh no problem. <laughs> so <laughs> so how, how much ceremony is there to getting SignalR up and running? Is there like a ton of code that I have to write up, or is there just a couple lines in a in a hub and in a client that uh, will get me up and running? Minimal minimal code. So um, let's let's just go with the presumption that you're actually using a hub. Okay. Uh, let's say you're doing this in an ASP.NET Core application. Um, <clears throat> you in your startup CS, you would have your middleware wire up, which is effectively services.addsignalr. Um, and then down below, when you wanted to map your endpoints, and we actually support endpoint routing in .NET Core 3 now. Uh, so you could do endpoint routing. You could route all of your MVC controllers, your SignalR hubs, and everything all in one place. <clears throat> Essentially, you have to do that because uh, each hub has to have an endpoint, you know, a, a URI effectively, so that you know a client can connect to it. So there's two lines of code in Startup CS, um, and then uh, you could literally do, you know, chat hub, inherit from hub, and then close the file. Uh, you don't have to add any functionality to your hub at all if all you want to do is have two clients communicate through it. And at that point, you can literally say, and it's, this is when the magic kind of happens. You could say on, you know, JavaScript client A, uh, you know, you could say, I want to invoke uh, a method on this hub. So you would literally do new hub connection dot uh, start. Um, and then and then your your connection started. Now, between the new hub connection and the start, you would wire up any event handlers. And that would literally be connection dot on. And then you pass it a string and then you pass it a callback. Literally, that's all you do. Um, and it's just like it's just like normal event handling in in JavaScript or normal event handling in uh, .NET, but um, it's over the wire, so it's pretty fantastic. And then on your other side, when you want to do invoke a method on that hub, you would just call hub.invoke um, or send. Um, and what ends up happening is you call the send method. The send the send method reaches that hub. The hub turns around and then does a push to all the other connected clients, and each one of their individual on uh, handlers just runs. So it's it's deceptively simple. Um, it's actually pretty pretty frighteningly easy to get going. Um, yeah, so. even I was able to do it. So it's pretty easy. And then what about is it? I mean, is this exclusively for .NET on the server side? I know I know all different clients are supported, but what about on the server side? On on the server side, if you want to have a hub, uh, right now there's only there's only the hub for .NET and .NET Core. Um, if you wanted to do something on the serverless side using the, using functions, um, uh, Anthony Chu, uh, the, the uh, great advocate in the CDA team, uh, he's kind of the, the new signal, our cheerleader. Um, we work together pretty extensively on, on demos and cool shows and whatnot. Um, Anthony's actually written a series of Azure function bindings. Um, and those bindings, I think we have them for JavaScript, for .NET, for Java, um, I don't know about Python. I don't know if that exists yet or not. Um, I believe it's in the works if it doesn't exist yet. But each one of those uh, bindings, you can literally just put those on top of your Azure function. And whenever your Azure function runs, it'll reach out to the SignalR service and, and, and call methods on. Okay. So, uh-huh. But so, no no hubs except for .NET. Okay. So when I'm writing uh, SignalR on a client, do I get like IntelliSense and all the other cool IDE features that I'm used to? Yes, you do. Um, well, if you're writing a client, no, because if I, yes, if you're doing .NET and there's a there's a reason why, and I'll, I'll kind of go into that. If you're in JavaScript, no. Like if like if I was to do you know connection dot on, you know, I'm going to get IntelliSense on that connection object because you know it's going to plumb into the JavaScript file and VS and, and figure it out. But I'm not going to get IntelliSense on those remote methods. Like like the SignalR hub is not going to say I have a method called chat or I have a method called send message. Now what you was can that always do, the case? Because I I remember that was always the case. 
Mm-hmm. That was always the case. I remember getting IntelliSense working. Um, I'll have to look that up just in case we're talking about different things. I remember that working because um, that you, was really you, important to me. Yeah, you probably got it working with uh, original SignalR um, when we would do what's called proxies. Uh, yes. We don't have proxies anymore. We don't we, we don't do that uh, anymore. There's no okay. such thing as a proxy, so you don't get that. Anymore. So that um, must have been yeah, it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the the kind of your proxy method is gone. Um, we're talking about adding that back in. We're talking about adding some sort of descriptiveness. There is a gentleman uh, uh, MVP actually, the gentleman who wrote uh, NSwag, the Swagger generator, kind of like Swashbuckle. Um, he's actually doing something similar for signal R. We don't know if we're ever going to use it, but I like it because I'm a big swagger guy. Um, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, you don't get IntelliSense done. One thing you can do is, you know, we also have a .NET client, obviously for signal R endpoints. One thing you can do is you can have a hub of T, um, and that T would be an interface. Um, and you could have that interface shared between your client and your server, uh, projects, and then, you know, you would know, like, whenever I connected this hub, it's going to be, uh, it, this hub is going to be, you know, a hub of T, and I know what that interface looks like. So I, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to pass you an instance of that interface, and whenever you invoke methods, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run my local copy. Okay. So you can do that, um, but that's that's only going to be in .NET, and there's a little bit of ceremony there. But in terms of ceremony of, like, you know, creating a new hub and, and partying on it, no, there's it's not very much at all. Okay. And if you're talking about the serverless side, there's not much either. Uh, the Azure Functions documentation on DocsMS.com has uh, a lot of great examples, and Anthony Chu has a fantastic litany of examples. Uh, he recently did one uh, called CaptionR, uh, where he uh, is talking to a web browser and it's uh, doing uh, speech to text, and then it's sending that text to cognitive services, doing a translation. And on another browser, you can actually see the translated text that somebody's talking coming through. It's oh, that's crazy. cool. Okay, yeah, it's really really hot. Yeah. Cool. And then, and then, what about performance? Like every time I've used it, like the the latency has been fantastic. I mean, it's basically sending everything in real time, and the scale has been great as well. Like I, I actually have never. Uh, run into a situation where I was going to exceed like what one server could handle. So I don't know if, if you can talk to performance at all. Um, you, you pretty much summarized it. Um, it's yeah. fast. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's real time uh, with the new streaming stuff. As you saw when you did the uh, streamer demo a moment yeah. ago, it is, it is in- extremely fast. Um, uh, we worked up a quick demo of streaming kind of the time from the server and it went to uh, milliseconds. So you could actually see it ticking like in real time yeah. pretty, pretty fast. Um, I'm actually looking. Uh, Hunter says he misses you guys. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, oh, we miss him too. Uh, he's texting. He, yeah, he's, he's texting me. He, he may need me, so I might have to cut this out yep. in just a second. Yep. Um, he says he needs a build podcast. So, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we're gonna we're happen. gonna talk we're gonna talk to him at build. <laughs> they can do that. Say so they can do that. So I'm 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 basically the service bus relay right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> now, you're uh, not signal uh, R. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, now it, I'm I'm actually looking at one of our MVP summit decks, and one thing that I'm looking at here is we actually had this long polling paradox. We had a fix, uh, and we had kind of explored like a little bit of a a, a little bit of a. A place where we added task delay mm-hmm. in one of our alarm polling areas and we, uh, we 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 implemented a fix there and after that fix i'm actually looking at the data we had WebSocket messages per second okay so these are messages per second yeah before we did this fix i mean even before it's crazy it was before it was over a million one million eleven thousand one twenty six <laughs> after this fix yeah two million six hundred eighty three thousand one twenty seven yeah 
That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. So you can send 2 million WebSocket messages a second over Signal. Yeah. That is frightening. Yeah, I think, so, I think, I think the, the takeaway, I mean, for, for anything that I've ever used it for, like it was way, way, I mean, it was order of magnitudes better than what I even needed. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. I think the only pain point is the backplaning. I mean, backplaning is, it's, Trust me when I tell you that that using a backplane is painful. Building a backplane is ten times as painful. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So if I do need to build something with Signal R that needs to be highly available, what do I need to think of, or what do I need to do in order to make that happen? That's a great question. Um, uh, we actually have a couple of great articles on the uh, on the DocsMSCOM around the around this. Uh, there's an HA article on the Azure Signal R service docs. Um, I would definitely say if you wanted to do SignalR and you're going to have a, a highly highly available situation, you're going to need a lot of scale. You're definitely going to want to use the service because you're going to have that infinite scaling capability. Yeah. Um, the way that works is you can actually have um, up to 100,000 connections on one SignalR service instance. If you know you're going to have more than that, we actually have two articles that are pretty fantastic. One of those articles talks about how to use SignalR service to, you can kind of set up multiple instances and it will shard across those instances. And what's nice is the article kind of goes through and talks about how you can shard according to what groups you're putting your users into. So SignalR, you know, when you talk about the hub concept, uh, you can actually target individual users. I could target a user or a group of users or the caller or the client, you know, like all. Um, So what's nice about it is um, you can actually say, you know, if I put, if I group people into East US, I want them on the East US instance. Mm -hmm. If I group them into West US, I want them on the West US instance. But the nice thing is that service is going to relay those messages between those instances. So you're not going to have to worry about backplaning the backplane. Right. Um, so you can chain those together. And then the other thing is that their SDK also supports uh, fault, uh, failover. So if for whatever reason, one of the regions goes out, you can actually fail over to the next region. So you could you can implement that kind of an HA situation as well, using multiple instances. But the solution for HA and the solution for sharding is similar. You have multiple instances. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And then uh, how much does this cost if I'm using the service? Well, actually, if I'm not using the service, I don't pay anything, right? I mean, it's just free. Correct. And Correct. then how much Correct. is the service? The service is, uh, I believe the, I believe the post GA price. I think it was forty nine, for, it was forty nine dollars a month for, like a hundred thousand connections. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> you can get started pretty easily, but the getting started free account, I believe it supports something like twenty thousand or twenty. I can't remember twenty thousand messages. It's it's all in the it's all like right there on the okay. slider, right there in the portal. Um, but you would use that to really get started. You know what I mean? Um, Is that Scott again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Luckily, we're almost done. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. One of the devs is looking for me. I think, and I can tell you why. <laughs> I, I guess I when's the, when's this episode coming out? Just so let me make sure I can tell you why. Uh, probably next week, early next week, I would think. Okay. Um, so. Okay, cool. Uh, so like a round build, that's good. Yeah. Um, so we have this new thing. Uh, awesome. Will do. Oh, here it is. See, this is, this is my life right before build. <laughs> I, I, now I know why he's looking for me. He has a crazy, he has a crazy build demo idea and he needs me to build it. For him. Uh. So, <laughs> so I'm still the demo guy. When I was in yeah. marketing, I was a demo guy and I'm still doing that. Um, sorry, I forgot your question because he pinged me again. Oh no, it's fine. Cause we, we sort of went through cost. I guess the, the, the last thing would be, um, are there any roadmap items that you can, uh, that you can talk about yeah, yeah. that are upcoming? 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, doing that. That's like the most important thing. So have you heard about this thing? Uh, you probably haven't heard about it. Uh, you probably haven't kept up. Blazer. <laughs> have you heard about this thing? Yes. Blazer? Okay. Yes. Okay. And, you, and, and, and you've heard about the artist formerly known as Razor Components. You've heard about yep. that concept as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, those guys use drumroll signal R to do all their AOT. <clears throat> now, if you wanted to, you know, right click deploy, you know, only in a dev zone, mind you to uh, app service, you know, we kind of want you to think about the Azure Signal R service as kind of a sidecar. Um, we kind of want you to use that in conjunction with app service. But a lot of folks didn't know how to do the wire up, and then a lot of folks didn't know how to call the Azure stuff. So we've actually uh, made that experience pretty great. Um, coming out around build time uh, in the VS preview, we're actually going to add Signal R provisioning to the right-click publish experience when you're publishing to Azure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if you're publishing an app to Azure and you know you're going to use Razor components and you know you're going to have 100,000 active connections, you're probably going to want to add the Signal R service. So we're just going to add that in there for you. We're going to go ahead and add it, and then um, we've minimized the amount of code changes you would have to make already. Um, we're trying to get that to zero. So if you were to right-click publish a Razor Components or a Blazor app or any app that uses SignalR, um, what we would like to have is a, a, a day where you don't have to add the add Azure SignalR method. That's the only thing you have to do. Um, uh, you wouldn't even have to do that. Um, it would just know that you were in Azure. It would know that you needed to be using the service and you had an instance configured, and it would just start going over there instead of not going over there. So we're actually adding that into the uh, publishing experience. So that'll make life easier for folks who want to use Razor or Blazor apps. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and then other roadmap items. Um, I, th- I talked about client-to-server streaming, and you've seen that already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've talked about how we're adding back in reconnections, but we'll never add in replay. Um, so we've definitely got all that stuff on the horizon for 3.0. Um, after 3.0, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, we, we've talked about crazy things like, what if I want to use gRPC for speed, but I want to use SignalR for convenience? Um, I don't know if there's a convergence story there. Um, it'd be cool if there was. And then other folks have asked for like, I think it's WebRTC or WebRPC. I haven't looked into that too much. People have asked for support for that. Um, uh, so, you know, we're investigating all those things. Um, we definitely want to, you know, make sure people can access SignalR and use it as an abstraction on top of as many layers as possible. So. Okay. Super cool. And then obviously our listeners, they should, uh, they should watch the, uh, the build demos to see what yes. crazy, uh, crazy thing you and Scott come up with. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're coming up with all kinds of stuff. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think right now we're in that, we're in that fun chaos mode. Um, this, this happens until probably Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. And then everybody goes, okay, we have to decide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. People don't realize everything happens last minute. It's, uh, it's not like the build demos that like are six months in advance. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure every once in a while there is one that's like that, but I mean, everything comes together absolutely last minute. It's just, it's just chaos. I mean, every, con- yeah, I mean, it doesn't even matter. It's not Microsoft. It's like every conference every. is like that. Every conference like that. I mean, but that's only, how you the only- get the latest in technology to showcases right. by yeah. having exactly. it that week. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing a video for. Uh, do you guys remember the uh, the awesome uh, demo that uh, that uh, Hanselman did for AKS with the when Guthrie had to walk out and hold the mic for him? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I remember running from office to office, recording different people's screens, and then splicing all those recordings together <laughs> so that we could go and show what we were gonna show. Yeah, and then the day, and it was just, it was crazy. It was crazy yeah. times. Uh, I would Absolutely. say the only, the only keynote like that we've had planning on that I've been a part of was we started planning Connect 2017 in June, and it was in November. So yeah. that was fun. Yeah. Okay, so one fun question to ask you. This is a the game that we like to play with our 
Guess, oh. would you rather go camping in the Sahara Desert or in Siberia? The Sahara Desert or in Siberia? Yeah. I, I'm not a heat guy. I would go with Siberia. Yeah, in Siberia, I mean, there's water there, right? Like, it's just frozen. Yeah. So that's that's. I'll go with Siberia. <laughs> I would, I would, yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely go with Siberia. I was in Helsinki in January for IgluConf. Yeah. And at one point, we were, <laughs> that's awesome. It was a great <laughs> conference. At one point, we were nine kilometers from the Russian border. Um, yeah. We were walking on a frozen lake. That was pretty cool. I, I would definitely go with Siberia over the Sahara. I lived in Arizona for a while. No. <laughs> yeah i'm thinking if i if in both cases i have the correct gear i just think uh, i think the water situation is better in siberia what do you think Carl? what would you pick um the the problem is they're they're both extremes yeah. so you know as, as somebody who lives in in wisconsin we get some pretty nasty winters yeah I'm yeah kinda, the winter the yeah. winter is siberia and the summer is the sahara desert <laughs> we except both. we except we have water and mosquitoes so you wouldn't yeah. have bugs uh I, it's tough, but I think I'd have to end up with Siberia because I I think I could handle that better. Yeah, I can handle that better. I can handle cold. You can get warm. You can't get cool. You know. So. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Okay, so Brady, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter. That's definitely the best place. Uh, my Twitter handle is pretty creative. It's Brady Caster. <laughs> Clever. How'd you come up with that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. uh, I don't know. I, I I got on early. I got lucky. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Oh, and I'm already following Brady. So that's great. Uh, and you can find me at twitter.com slash why techie. So Brady, thank you so much for coming on here. Talk about uh, talking to us about signal R and the signal R service and all that goodness. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Well, I've been listening to the show for quite some time, not five years, but I have been listening for quite <laughs> some time. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs>